problem. Beautiful. Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Ramblick. Thank you for joining me. Now, uh, my guest today is someone I first met back in 1987 when he just literally come back from being, uh, well, having made some friends with the constabulary at Fiji. That would have been the year of uh, the Fijian, Fijian coup. Um, I'd done two weeks of work experience. I was only thinking about doing journalism, and he was doing it. Since then, he's been all over the place, reported for various organisations. It currently would network 10 and doing a radio show on weekends with Radio National. It's, of course, Hugh Remington, uh, the host of the news on, on the 10 Network. Hugh, thank you for joining me today. Great to talk to you, Tom. I, I, I didn't, it shows you what a, a broadcast professional I am, that I just had my mic turned off there. So my apologies for that slight gap you could drive a truck through. I do know what I'm doing, Tom. Uh, by the way, I don't do the uh, Radio National show anymore. After two years of working seven days a week, uh, I stopped that at the end of last year, but uh, still National Affairs Editor at, uh, at 10 these days. Okay, so Radio National is scratch, but you're still at 10. If you had to describe your career um, on, the back of a, on the back of a post-it note, what would you tell somebody? Well, if you didn't want a post-it note, you could read my book called Minefields, an excellent read there, 30, 40 <laughs> years in the news game, whatever it is. I think you can still find it in the discount bin somewhere. So um, <laughs> basically, I'm a... Uh, I'm a hack. Uh, you know, I started at 17. I got my first job at 17. I've been in the game for more than 40 years. And um, much of that time spent as a as a traveling or a foreign correspondent. I, I worked for CNN for some time uh, out of Hong Kong. I was a, a foreign correspondent for the Nine Network. Uh, I've also been a political editor for the Ten Network out of Canberra. And, uh, you know, newsreader for Nine and for CNN and for Ten and things. But chiefly, I'm, I'm a reporter. And um, I do a podcast called uh, The Professor and the Hack with Peter Van Onselen. So that's another game. And I write for various mobs. I've got an article currently in the monthly and uh, just on a freelance basis, just where, where my interest takes me. So I remain as I was at 17, just a curious um, hack trying to make sense of the world. But in, in, things have changed in recent times, have they, Hugh, for, for hacks and others, if I can put it that way. Um, the way we work, or the way people work, has changed over the past two months, uh, given the pandemic. And it's something I'm really interested in having people understand. They see you on television, but they don't see all the other stuff that goes on behind the scenes. What's happened um, over the past couple of months that's changed what you would normally do. So so we are the same as everyone else in the sense that we're subject to the social distancing laws. Um, when I'm reading the news, as I am this evening, uh, I will go in there, put the makeup on, go into the studio. We've got, you know, we have a, uh, the, you know, the, the necessary apparatus of running a studio news output continues. Uh, but we don't sit side by side with, say, the sports presenter you know there'll be the distance between us um, and then in the newsroom itself a lot of people are working from home so when I'm not actually in the studio to read I'm, I'm working from home I have a, an office I'm, I'm lucky enough to have space in my place to have a dedicated kind of office and um, and then I will go out in my own vehicle to uh, do interviews meeting camera crews there we don't travel with camera crews anymore which we normally would um, so so these are the 
these will be eased, I think, a little bit uh, in the months ahead. I think we're coming out of the the very tight social restrictions. And so we will work again with camera crews, I think. But it's been an unusual circumstance. There's been a lot more pooling of resources between networks and normally cutthroat competition has been somewhat set aside. But against that, we have to recognize that um, we're all dependent on advertising and that's fallen off a cliff. So everyone working in the field at the moment is conscious that um, essentially that, that we're defying gravity, the gravity of of uh, the loss of revenue coming in. And we're starting to see layoffs occurring. Uh, the 10 network that I work for has um, laid off its um, online staff. The 10 daily site has been removed. Uh, and this is just one of many shifts that are taking place. So there's, there are pressures in how we do work and in our capacity in the future to continue to do work. Yes, I noticed the 10 daily um, redundancies that came about over the past couple of over the past couple of weeks, and, and Twitter has been full of that news. In terms of television reportage, radio is kind of easier. You, you tend to rely on your own smarts because you don't need pictures. But you going out in your own car to a location, the camera crew sort of meet you there. Um, there's something that, that might be missing when you're not travelling with them, and that is that, that that immediate interpersonal communication you might have when you've just done an interview or you've just done a press and you'd be talking to them about what you want, cut into cut into the story. Is there that kind is that interpersonal stuff um, still going on? Well, to a lesser degree, because you spend less time with them. And I did eight years, I think it was, in radio before I started in TV. And one of the things about being in radio is that you have to be a self-starter. If, you, if you're not fitting up for it, 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 you know, it, it, you know, do you really want to go and knock on that door and ask that family about the loss of their child and some sort of calamity? Um, you, you have to find some grounds for to motivate yourself to do that, you know, at that local level of reporting. Um, whereas if you're with a crew, you you know, you're part of a team and, and your spirits get buoyed by that team effort. Um, but that's that's at that level of it. Um, I, I like working with small teams. So, you know, I miss that interaction with the crews. Uh, the crews are smaller than they were, of course. You used to go out with a cameraman and a soundman. They generally were men. Uh, you know, for most of the time, they're far more likely to be just a single unit at the moment. Um, but these are just, these are in some ways the, the, the least of the changes that have come upon journalism. The, the changes are far more profound and they go much more deeply into the existential questions about journalism. Does it have a future? Um, and And I think regardless of whether you're Meeting the crew at the scene and then driving away in your in your separate cars afterwards is really the least of the issues that are facing journalism at the moment. I think. Did it, the dynamic um, that you've mentioned uh, in terms of where journalism heads? What's your gut feel? I mean, you've seen things come and go over thirty or forty years. Where, where do you think it sits at the moment? Well, I think there's no question that. Uh, the digital age has has uh, and particularly the transferring of the revenue source that always came in terms of advertising to online um, and then ultimately 
the the further migration of the way in which people get their information into online has profoundly changed society. It's changed journalism. The revenue is stripped out of it, uh, for one thing. But also people, you know, a news, a trained, you know, 40 years experience as a newsman. I've got a fair idea of how the world works, um, about where you go to talk to people, to get a, an insight into the people at the edges, uh, at, at, the, at the front of whatever is the issue that you're talking about. Those are those experiences that are there. And my job is, for all the fact I'm talking about it now, it's not about, it is not about me. It's about going to going to try to find the facts of a matter and report the facts of the matter fairly and, and, and get various different points of view on what it is. Whereas that's quite quaint as a notion now. You can go to your Facebook groups or your other kinds of groups and have whatever your view is about that. Um, you know, projected back towards you by everyone else who thinks the same way. And more and more, we're seeing people do that. So we're seeing increasing subsets of society, quite large, if we're to believe the polling, who believe that, for example, coronavirus was initiated by Bill Gates, or that it's somehow related to 5G, or that it's somehow connected to the anti-vaxxer movement. Um, You know, all kinds of lunacies are are out there and they're given equal value with, if you like, fact-checked news. And for all the flaws of traditional mainstream media, and they certainly exist, uh, we're seeing a a diminishment of that as a centralizing force in our society. And that means that we're becoming a more fractured society. These these are things we can all see as we look around us. And, And that's real with real consequences. What are the kinds of consequences you're seeing as you go around? Well, what it means is that uh, people are... There's more populism. And for politicians, you see, what happened in the old days when, say, you had a daily newspaper or maybe two daily newspapers in your city or town and you had your TV news. The TV news, uh, which is where most people by, say, the 70s, 80s, 90s, were getting their their news from the television. And they'd still get newspapers delivered to the door or whatever it might be. But TV has its own power because the pictures are there. Uh, They tended to be centralising forces because that's where the mass of the society was. And if there were commercial entities that you were involved in, they wanted to go where the audience was because that's where the advertisers wanted you to go and that's where the money was. So what you tended to have was these these news organizations of enormous power and influence, but which were essentially committed, whether they thought about it that way or not, to essentially the the, the mainstream, the, the center of a society. Now that could be dull for some people and people who had random views of it wouldn't matter whether you were you were activist in environmental causes saving whales or whatever or if you were uh, at the far end of right-wing things you would be frustrated at mainstream media because it never seemed to talk about the things you wanted to talk about and people seem to be ignoring the things that you wanted to talk about but they were a centralizing force now what's happened is that those great towers of centralizing uh, information and moderating influence have collapsed they still exist to a certain degree, but their influence is nowhere near what it was. And what you're getting is you can get whatever. Uh, so if, if what you care about more than anything else is saving whales or um, environmental issues that might be at the extreme, or if you're an anti-vaxxer, or if you're a white supremacist or anti-Islamist or an Islamist, uh, 
you know, trying to put out your point of view, you can reach your own audience without needing to try to get the approval of those centralizing forces. And so what you get is, in fact, a whole bunch of cantons existing within your society, each having their own point of view reinforced by their own subset. So they become more and more convinced of their righteousness, of their belief, no matter how fringe it might be. Um, and the centralizing voices have become diminished. Politicians pick up on that. So the more lunatic ideas can get a, a, a political, uh, can be reflected in politics to a certain degree. And this is true regionally as well as, um, as, well as within ideas. So, so, so this is what you're seeing happening is that it's reflected in politics. It's, it's harder and harder to take a, particularly where there's greater partisanship between the political parties, it's harder and harder to get, uh, if you like, modest, moderate policies and ideas and a society cohering around those ideas. That is, that is going to get more and more difficult. And we're seeing in Trump's America what some of the implications of that are. I apologize for the background noise, by the way. I've got a couple of guys putting in a water heater system in my house, and so I do apologize for that. It's all fine. Oh, no, it's all fine, Hugh. I can't, I can't hear anything going on because you've probably got a cardioid mic sitting in front of you. There you go. Uh, if not a cardiac arrest happening right in my chest at the moment as I try to keep the noise levels down top. And that's all. <laughs> that's all fine. the The thing that I've noticed, um, just on your point, not so long ago, like on the weekend, I got a someone sending me a video that was they believed was Bill Gates speaking to the CIA in two thousand five. Now that video was debunked by any number of any number of sites. Um, but because people are picking this stuff up and they're sharing it with others, it starts to get a life of its own until, you know, a relative or a friend contacts someone who's a professional in determining what's accurate. They say, well, this is rubbish. Ignore it. Well, this is true. And in yeah. fact, it, you know, the, the old complaint used to be that, oh, my quote was taken out of context. And sometimes that was a legitimate argument. And sometimes it was just a way in which people tried to cover themselves. But nevertheless, there was no argument that somebody said something. The question was, uh, was the context in which they said it, uh, you know, correct to, to the subject? Often it was. And people have been caught out saying things that they would rather they hadn't have said. But what we're now coming into an environment of in the era of deep fake is where you might see these things exist out on the internet, for example, uh, the capacity to um, use uh, online techniques to have lips move to say words in the voice that you're used to hearing from that speaker, saying words that they never said. And there's some stuff with Barack Obama, for example, saying things that he hadn't said. It, it, this has been put out. And there are numerous other cases. This is what's called deep fake. And so once we, we've come to a world where uh, you can share, see and share uh, powerful figures, or they could be, say, someone who claims to be a victim of something that's happened, where they appear to be saying something which they have never said. And yet it's almost impossible to pick that up and it'll get harder and harder in time to tell the difference. Then you add in uh, bad actors, uh, famously like uh, Putin's Russia, which is dedicated. There's plenty of peer-reviewed evidence of this dedicated to the process of using uh, the disruptive capacities of online uh, agents to uh, create fake news. There is such a thing to try to uh, disturb 
democratic processes. And a, a classic example being that in uh, in the United States, for example, they will use a fake Facebook group, uh, which will say something like Texans, uh, Texan Muslims for Sharia law or something, and then put out a we're going to hold a big gathering in downtown you know, Houston or something. And then at the same time with another fake Facebook group saying, you know, keep America for Americans or something, which will then say, stop the uh, Muslims parading through our streets. Now, these are both entirely invented, concocted setups. And yet because they then get shared around on Facebook, when the allotted day comes, there will be Muslims turning up there and there will be um, you know, Texan nationalists or whatever turning up there as well on the day because they've been essentially manipulated by a process engineered by by Russian operatives. And this has been, you know, this kind of behavior, disruptive behavior. You know, there's, there's a, a thing that's been found in examination of Twitter that roughly half of the Twitter commentary calling for the economy to be opened up faster in the pandemic are coming from bots. And they're not, there's nobody behind them. They're being engineered um, by bad actors uh, who want the economy opening up faster in the United States in the hope that it leads to a bigger spread of the disease and, uh, you know, and more negative outcomes for the United States. So uh, th- these are not sort of wacky conspiracy theories. These are things that, that are going on. And people need to be aware in a way that they've never previously had to be aware of how easy it is to manipulate public opinion in a newly digitalized space which is tailor-made for bad behavior at a time when traditional both centralizing politics but also centralizing media are diminished in a way that we haven't seen in in a couple of hundred years. Absolutely. Uh, We've got some... um... Got a cl- classic examples of it with that pandemic media video that was recently being pulled off by uh, YouTube and other social media networks because of the some of the material that was in there that was harmful. But by the time they started pulling it down, it had already gotten viral. There's no doubt about it, and th- there are people out there uh, um, who are quite intelligent, who firmly and ardently believe in things which are not. Uh, objectively true, and are uh, spreading and and putting their voices. They, they, they can be so. So on one level, you have bad actors just simply manipulating a process for their own geopolitical yeah. ends, and then on the other level, you've got people who ardently hold something and and are able to um, maximize their coverage through these these areas. In fact, if you look at the denial of climate science. Um, just the sheer fact of the science. You can have all kinds of arguments about what policy you should do about, um, you know, about policies that you might want to put in place about it. And those are proper arguments to be had. Those are proper, proper societal arguments, but about, you know, the, you know, the broad, the broad volumes of, of evidence of what's going on in climate, there is not that much dispute. There's dispute around the edges, but there's not. There's no d- dispute about the central stuff. And yet, that sort of merchant of doubt capacity to um, have to throw in every bit of doubt that you can find and maximise all the noise around all the di- doubt has butchered proper uh, policy debates, 
which, you know, the, the debates are difficult enough, even if you accept the science. <laughs> but by disputing yeah. it, by throwing everything you like, you know, against the science and, and, and the forces that have been at work in disputing that with clear echoes of the way in which big tobacco was able to, for decades, uh, sustain the notion of doubt around whether tobacco was bad for you or not. Um, you know, that, that's, that same sort of technique, but multiplied, amplified enormously, has been happening in, in this important area of policy for, you know, for years. And, and only finally when, when, when the globe itself asserts, it's, you know, when the models that the scientists have been saying have been happening get just sort of mirrored again and again and again, uh, and the public has shifted on this at long last to the realization that, in fact, um, you know, that what the scientists were telling you was, was true. Not every scientist, because this is how it works. You find the one scientist who said something extreme, uh, or, you get, or you get the one dissenting scientist or the small groups of dissenting scientists in some areas of science. They get magnified, and the broad brush of it is lost. And there are real-world consequences to that sort of, uh, you know, you might say failure. It's, 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 a, it's a collective failure by us to face up to stuff that we don't want to face up to. Absolutely. The other thing you've got in the environment, and this is where I guess we we start talking about the way social media is transposed on traditional journalism, for want of a better term, um, the, 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 the verifying, fact-checking journalism we've spoken about. Social media gets transposed on top of that. What happens to... Yeah, what happens to the way in which people look at traditional media once you transpose social media on top of what goes on? Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, one of the things about it is that social media is not totally evil by any means. It's, it's, it, is a, it does have a democratizing, democratizing uh, effect at the best ends of it. And mainstream media is not saintly. Let's be quite clear about that. And a lot of the, if you take the climate argument, a lot of the doubts have been megaphoned by uh, by large media, you know, plainly the Murdoch press um, has run for years and given volumes uh, of um, megaphone power to doubters and so on. Now, in the, in the very, very recent past, literally in the last few months, we've seen a shift in this from Rupert Murdoch um, in that he signaled, you know, there are no climate deniers, you know, in, in our firm or whatever it is. So, um, and you're seeing some of their columnists changing some of their tone to tack into line, which shows how malleable they are anyway. Um, but there's no doubt about it that there are failures in the mainstream media. The difficulty with all that is, is that it becomes a, um, uh, it, it just accelerates the sense of disdain for the mainstream media. And and then so people say, well, if the mainstream media is crap, I may as well believe in whatever I, I, I choose to believe in on social media. That's what's causing me the greatest concern is someone observing it from within, from away from a newsroom environment, watching the Twitter feeds, watching the things that emanate online, is how journalism as a profession is affected by all of all of this noise. Well, uh, you know, it's funny, reading Malcolm Turnbull's book, which is actually an excellent read, you can, you can draw what conclusions you, you wish to make of it, but it, it's a great read. But he says that uh, media is collapsing, uh, that um, one of the, the problems is, is that, if you like, the, you know, the, the proper 
forms of journalism that people have looked for has devolved down into the stage where it's little more than social media. It's it has the biases and the sort of the extreme sensationalism of social media. Um, I don't think that's necessarily uh, true because anything goes on social media. And I think even the worst of the mainstream media has to be held to some degree to account and knows that it has to be, whereas social media doesn't have to be held to any account at all. So for all the failings of social of, of mainstream media, there is at least some requirement against which they can be tested. Um, you know, you don't media watch doesn't spend its time picking out what someone tweeted out who no one's ever heard of that might be as extreme as hell, unless it's to make some point about the extremes of social media. But, um, you know, so there is a sense that the mainstream media can be held to account. But then you start to reapply the commercial realities. And that is that uh, newsrooms are getting smaller and smaller. Uh, the money that they've got to play with in order to do their journalism is getting less and less. And um, and that this is a this is a trend line which is irreversible. There's no conceivable uh, reversing of that. That uh, I can't foresee it. So what you're what you're going to have is over time a a fundamental shift, and it is as important but in reverse as when a free media started to emerge. Really, in the really started to get it from the late late 18th century. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe by the middle of the, of the 19th century in places like the United States, it started to really take hold. In the UK, it started to take hold. But that notion of the public trust element of the media is relatively new. We all were born into it. But if you look at it in historical sense, yes. we've got to realize it's a very short period of time in human history. And when it goes, we will be a different kind of uh, human community. What are the things, you know, I'm aware that um, we're coming close to time and this will be the final question, Hugh. What are the things that you see as holding hope for the media? We've spoken a lot about um, some things that impact on the way we do things and, and, and how the value of truth becomes somewhat diminished because people can talk to themselves more and there's not a moderating influence for things that may be uh, yeah. uh, extreme. I mean, where, where's the light? Where's the light coming from? Well, the um, there is no light. I think it's going to be much more dark and fractious uh, in in the period that is ahead in the in the decades and the gener- next couple of generations. And there may be processes by which um, a better informed public. You know, we may have to come to some sort of crisis and then emerging from that is a belief that a a, a centralized, um, informed public, you know, that there are values associated with that. But I I don't like top down, uh, you know, decisions as to what is news and what isn't news. That's not necessarily the answer either. I think the requirement is on every citizen to see the dangers and the risks and to apply themselves the level of responsibility that they would expect about any other major ethical issue. We don't go and steal from our neighbours. You know, we we don't go and drive down the high street at 160 kilometres an hour. Um, Our cars make it possible for us to do so, but we don't do it. Why don't we do it? Because we realize that it's not good for us and it's not good for our community. So I think that people need to apply the same sort of thinking to how we get more skeptical about 
information that comes to us, how we recognize that it is our responsibility to inform ourselves about the world that we're in and to realize that the hot rush of attaching ourselves to some uh, conspiracy theory that it's all because you know, this politician, this political party, this medical mob that wants to put, you know, embed, you know, things in your head with the vaccination against measles or whatever else it is that's going around there, you know, to apply some sense to what we're doing, because we actually are going to in the future need to rely on the sense of the good sense of the people who make up a society to make good decisions uh, and to give politicians uh, reason and motivation to make good decisions for that society. It's going to be harder in the future than it has been in the recent past. It's been hard enough in the recent past. So I think the responsibility to be a good citizen is going to involve how we manage the information that comes into us, how we reflect on that information and how we use it. Hugh, uh, it's been a delight having you on today. Could you please tell the people who've been listening to us where they can get hold of your book? Oh, well, it should be online somewhere. It's very kind of you. Um, Minefields, A Life in the News Game, it's called, uh, through Hachette. And uh, I, th- I think you can buy it online. Most definitely. Hugh Remington, thank you for joining me on Critical Line Item today. It's been a fascinating discussion. Great to talk to you, Tom. All the best, mate. Yes. Cheers.